I'd like to take our Bibles tonight and read from the Gospel according to Luke in chapter 19. We'll find our text, however, from Matthew 21 and verse 10. Luke 19 and Matthew and Mark and John all record the Passion Week of Jesus, varying details and from different perspectives, one truth of God. But we're going to read, first of all, Luke chapter 19 and begin reading at verse 28 through 44. Jesus is speaking, and when he had said this, Luke 19, 28, when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, and he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. There's Jesus commenting in the last upon the reception of the Pharisees, But this is the record in Luke of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem that last week of his life. Matthew 21 and verse 10 is our text on which and from which we'll reflect upon the events and significance of Palm Sunday. When he had come, Jesus had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? We enter now, according to church calendar, the last week of Jesus on earth, and it's been called the Holy Week or the Passion Week, the week of his suffering, the week of his intense suffering culminating in his death on the cross. Did you know that there's names given for just about every day of the week as well? For example, you have Fig Monday. Can you guess what Jesus did on the Monday of the Passion Week? He cursed the fig tree, symbolizing the curse of God upon Israel. Then there's Spy Wednesday. I'll leave you that to conclude what that is. Maundy Thursday. Anyone know what that means? Then there's Good Friday, of course, and Holy Saturday when there was silence and Jesus was resting in the grave. But today, it being the tradition of the church to celebrate these things, and it's not a bad but a good reminder always to be reminded of the things of Jesus' passion, we consider Palm Sunday. And we consider this 
And some have called it Jesus' triumphant entry. Others have called it his untriumphant entry, emphasizing the, the strange sorts of praise that, were, that was being uh, raised to the Savior, at least the, the ignorance of the people, but also the fact that he was not well received, as our text, in fact, uh, tells us and implies Jesus was not well received, especially in the inner circles of the Jews. And so it wasn't so triumphant, we could say it's an untriumphant entry. The whole city at this time is moved. That's the perspective we want to take. And we want to consider what that movement was. And also today, in our day, when so little are the people who seem to be moved by Jesus coming anywhere, not only on Palm Sunday, but some Monday or Tuesday or anywhere into their lives. And any record of these things is lost upon people nowadays or rejected completely by people so that they're moved to wrath and ultimately to crucify him so that whatever praise there was on Palm Sunday now are shouts of derision and reproach upon the Savior. So we want to ask ourselves the question in light of this movement of a whole city, Jerusalem, at Jesus' day, how shall we be moved by the events of Palm Sunday in light of everything we know of that Passion Week and of Jesus in the light also of the entire New Testament? So we consider when the city was moved, and we would consider first this was when Jesus was moved. Secondly, we consider that city in its movement, and finally, that we should move, or ask the question, should we move in light of the events of this day and the whole gospel? When Jesus had come into Jerusalem on that last Palm Sunday before his demise, when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? Jesus came into Jerusalem. He moved from one place outside of the city into this last place. From Galilee and the Enverones, where he had done many mighty miracles, now into Jerusalem, which he had visited before, which is the city of the great king. Many are the events of that day. And at least this, many are the praises of Jesus that are uttered on that day from those who are outside of the city. There's this whole city that's moved, but before them there's these events. He has, he has commandeered a donkey that doesn't belong to him from one point of view, but which is his because he owns the donkeys on a thousand hills. And so he commandeers it in the name of the Lord that he comes in and those who hear the disciples say this, and this is why it's needed, deliver that colt of a donkey to Jesus to ride on. The praise of Jesus at this time is deafening. And if you remember the situation, he's outside of Jerusalem He's in Bethany and Bethphage, and in a village a little ways off, he commandeers the donkey. They start, they put their clothes on the donkey, and they set Jesus on this colt of a donkey that's never, never been ridden before. And then they start the praise, and they start to cast their clothes in the front of the donkey's feet on the path toward Jerusalem, up the Mount of Olives, and then down. And also, at the same time, there's these people who have seen the mighty works that Jesus has done here and there and everywhere, and they're adding to the disciples' praise so that it is very loud, I would imagine. And at the same time, there's some who grab branches from the trees, and we call them palm tree branches, not quite sure what they are, though Jerusalem has been called the city of palms, and this in honor to them whom they believe is the Messiah, in honor to him 
whom they believe is the Messiah. Palm trees and the way they're treating Jesus, it's like the red carpet is strewn before him into this into the society of the holy city, that's all indicating how much they honor him. And you think of this, he had done so many mighty works. It's as if the whole of Jerusalem could have shut down all of the hospitals. At this point in his ministry, it's been three years of doing miracles here and there and everywhere at will, not willy-nilly, but whenever he wills feeding the multitudes with the five uh, of 5,000 people plus with five loaves of bread and two fishes and raising Lazarus from the dead and others, healing people of their sicknesses and diseases and as we saw this morning, even of their blindness, even though they had been or this one had been blind from birth. Besides, he showed himself in command of the devils. He cast them out. He was in command of the sea. He stilled it because he could still the waves and he stilled the, wa- he stilled the winds. And so this is this Jesus. And all the while there are these wonders. There's his word. No one ever spoke like this one. This one who spoke with authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees. Who would actually say, thus saith the Lord, because he was the sent one. He was not an imposter, and he was the great Messiah. And so they're celebrating him. Jesus has many things that are being said of him, and it seems all good. But I would point out to you that though all of these things are happening to Jesus, and he's simply riding on this colt of a donkey, Jesus is at the center of attention, not only, but he's the one who's calling this here. He's moving into Jerusalem at this time. He's the one who has before said to people, shh, be quiet. Don't tell anybody that I healed you. Several places in the New Testament Gospels it said that. But now... He is now unveiling his dignity and his being the real Messiah, and he is not holding back anymore. So there's this significant difference, but what I want to, want to say to you is that Jesus is in charge here. He's not letting this praise get out of hand. He is the one who has all of these mouths that are uttering praises and quoting the Psalms and the prophets He has them in his hand. And so what we want to say about this is that Jesus is moved and he's moving. He's moving and he's moved. And I want to say this because this is significant when we consider how the city was moved at his coming and at the praise of the people. Jesus is coming. And first of all, he's moving. He's he's making An entrance. He is doing this. He's acting. He's doing this, after all, as God who acts. He's the Son of God, the eternal God of the heavens, now on earth and now among people, moving among them, doing his will. As we saw this morning, working the works of the Father and showing off the great works of the Father in himself, in his words, in his miracles. And now on Palm Sunday, the king of the universe has arrived. He's making his move into this city. So there's an action here. There's a sovereignty that we have to remember here of Jesus Christ. Sovereignty means kingship, absolute control. Again, he owns the cattle and the donkeys on a thousand hills. How commandeers this one? He who is the mover and the shaker is moving the people in some way or another in his great mysterious sovereignty over the hearts of men. He is moving as God. He has not lost his divinity. Since he's been born, he's been God who's born. 
if we can even say that, it's such a mystery. He is as well the sovereign Messiah. He's sovereign in his being Messiah, the king. And even though I know there's this, this elevation of his dignity and his, his, his glory when he ascends and then all power and authority is given to him, there's still a sovereignty of Jesus as Savior, as the one who is in command of salvation, in command of all things, so that these will work according to the will of his Father. So that, first of all, we have a mover here. We have an actor, that is, one who is a, man, a God and this man, this God in the flesh, of action. And he is doing this as Messiah. Messiah, he's the one who is sent, sent of God. We saw this this morning. People had to come to the conclusion, where is Jesus from? He's from God. Yet the testimony of John the Baptist and of the scriptures and of himself and of his words and of his works and of others who followed him, they testified, he's from God. Let me tell you, he's from God. So he sent. And yet as the sovereign Messiah... He's willing to be sent. He is this one who comes not just pushed along by God or by his divinity. He's willing now to be the servant of the Lord, to do the will of the Father and not his own will. He'll wrestle with that in the garden Monday Thursday, Gethsemane Thursday, we could call it, the night he was betrayed. Not my, he, he's saying this, this cup, oh God, it's tough to, to consider even the prospect of suffering outside of your fellowship on the cross and being forsaken for sin. But not my will, but thy will be done. But he's willing. He's willing. And as Messiah as well, he's coming. He's moving into this arena now of Jerusalem, the holy city, as one who is willingly fulfilling the scriptures. He would be having in mind or simply fulfilling as simply because he's the word of God and this is natural to him. The prophecy, for example, of Isaiah in chapter 9. In verse 6, we have the wonderful prophecy of the son who would be born, the child would be given, whose name is Wonderful and Counselor and so on. In verse 7, you have something that certainly was being fulfilled at this time as he goes to Jerusalem. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Well, Jesus certainly is zealous here. He's not just a victim of the Madding crowd and its maddening cries that are really out of ignorance, largely. But he's zealous himself to fulfill the scriptures with regard to himself. And, and not mechanical. You see, Jesus isn't saying, now, I've got a list of, of scriptures to fulfill here. And I'm going to check this one off. Now, Isaiah 9, verse 7, and Zechariah 9, verse 9, riding on the donkey. And they have to praise me and so on. But it is coming here because he's the word of God. There's the word written, but before the word written is the word who is the eternal son of God, the great communicator from heaven. And the one by whom and for whom the worlds were made, who was speaking in all the law and the prophets. And now he's speaking as well in the fulfillment of the words that have been his from of old. Saying, put it this way, saying whatever God has ever said. He's saying it now. And it's being so wonderfully fulfilled. All the promises, yea and amen, now in this week will come to pass. So, he's the seed of the woman, isn't he? Who's the seed of Abraham? Who's the seed of David? whose kingdom it is and shall be, and who will crush the head of that snake, according to the mother promise. And he comes on that donkey. Let's think about that just a minute here. The fulfillment of Zechariah, verse 
uh, chapter 9, verse 9 is, is going on here. Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we see here Jesus' movement, which is a very humble movement of God with us. God the Messiah who comes in our place, who comes as, as a servant, who will be crushed on the cross and, and all of his life crushed out of him. And the very breath and life and blood will flow out of him that we might live forevermore. Humble, riding on a donkey. The narrative is not Jesus riding on a great steed with six shooters in his, in his hands, shooting up the place, defeating all the enemies. No, the humble, lowly servant of the Lord. He's, he's moving here. The kind of Savior that there must be if we be delivered from our problem, and it's not COVID-19, 20, 21, or 22. It's sin number one. You the sinner, and I the sinner, and we all together, the sinners who cannot stand in the temple of God, except we stand on Jesus. And so he comes this way. He's the mover. But then, say it this way, and he is moved. He's not only sovereign here, and he's a servant, but a willing servant, but he's moved like with compassion. And grief. Did you pick up on that in Luke 19? We read the narrative, that's why we read it. As he drew near, Luke 19, 41, he saw the city and wept over it. And then he contemplated the judgment that awaited Jerusalem and Jerusalem's children. He wept over it. Now, let's be clear on this weeping. Jesus is not weeping because he could wish it were otherwise. Maybe that every single last Pharisee would be saved. There would be no judgment upon Israel, judgment beginning at their house, Jerusalem. It's not the case that the sovereign one who has determined who will be saved and the sovereignty of God in Jesus' death even, that accomplishes salvation, is somehow compromised by the compassion of the Savior at this time. No. As one has put it, very aptly, I think, let us maintain sovereignty, the sovereignty of Jesus, and the serenity of Jesus at the same time. He's not upset here as if Sovereignty is being rocked as if he's of conflicted desires in the sense that he really wants something that is not the Father's will. In another place, won't he say, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hid these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them unto babes. Even so, because it seemed good in your sight, Matthew 11, 25, 26. And even at this time, he's, he's announcing the salvation that's come, but also that there's judgment that's come. And it cannot be denied God who's holy. And so the sovereignty of Jesus will not be compromised by the compassion of Jesus, but there is a real compassion of Jesus. There is a real weeping that goes on. These are not crocodile tears. They are Christ's tears. What's he weeping about? What is moving him to weep? You see, this is 
This is the, the wonder of the God who moves. He is moved as well. He's that humble. Well, certainly, beloved, it's simply the grief of this condition. It's this sadness. It's this sorrow, this, this ultimate pure sorrow and grief at everything that's gone wrong among humanity. The badness of it all. And the devils who seem to be winning. He's grieving. He's grieving over what Jerusalem's leaders have done to Jerusalem's children, burdening them with all these laws and commandments. He's coming into this mess, the worst kind of mess there can be, a religious mess and tyranny and law upon law, legalism or antinomianism, a religious, hey, doesn't matter. Either one he rejects and he grieves over. He's real, this Savior. He's real. That's why we can say, or the Bible can say in Galatians, that we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit of Christ. And how that can be. It's, a, it's, a, it's this mystery again, but let's not cut the knot and just get rid of the mystery by denying what this is or maybe saying it's compromising whatever else Jesus is, sovereign and a weeper among men. Sovereign and serene. It's a good way to remember that. Sovereign and serene, still God, still aiming at God's will, still satisfied of course, in the fulfillment of all these things with regard to him. And now we get to the city. So that's Jesus moved. Jesus moving, Jesus moved. Now the city moved. I want to say this. When Jesus comes into the city, there, there seems to be two reactions to different ones. And that is the reaction of those who are outside of the city and they're praising God. And if you look at Matthew 21, you, you find this and Luke and John and, and Mark record it. But then there seems to be a decidedly different reaction after the praise and the Palm Sunday praise, the, the palm branches and so on. When he comes to the city, the city is moved and they're ones with a question. The people outside have no questions. They are just they are just really into this praising thing and into this Messiah. They're into the moment. They're thinking this is it, this is the great thing. And and the others inside, who is this? And their answer's telling. The multitudes of the city say, This is Jesus, the prophet. From Nazareth of Galilee. So that's what we want to talk about in this point in the sermon. But I do want to reflect with you upon this amazing analogy, really. There's praise here. There's praise in Palm Sunday, just like there was when Jesus entered the world. Remember that? The angels met the shepherds, and glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. What, what a chorus there. Well, here you have praise as Jesus going out of the world. Here you have people troubled, moved at Jesus at this time. And wasn't that the case also when the birth of Jesus the king was announced by the wise men and they went to Herod? It's said there in Matthew 2 that Herod and Jerusalem with him, all Jerusalem with him, was troubled, troubled. And here you have it, they're moved. All the city was moved, and even those ones outside of the city are moved. And that word, moved, has to do with seismology, as we would say. Plate tectonics, the study of earthquakes, and the movement of the earth. It's that significant. They're moved to the soul so that you could say there's a soul quake going on here. 
A society quake. Something's happening. There's this epicenter of quakingness from which tsunamis come and other things that usually are bad. They're moved in their hearts and all together to do certain things, to say certain things. But they've got to do something. They are moved. Well, beloved, let's reflect upon this. Outside the city, there's praise. Is that praise legitimate? Well, it's biblical. Jesus is worthy of all the praise. And I think we we need, we Dutchmen and Italians need, and all of us of other different national stripe, we need to take heart here. Their praise is biblical, and their praise is exuberant. How often... Is our praise unbiblical or not exuberant? needs to be both. There needs to be this praise and there is this movement of the soul that's reacting to Jesus that can only say, thank God and all glory to God and I love him and I adore him and I love his appearance the first time and the next time. I love that blood of the Lamb that's shed for me. I love what He does. He forgives. I love His Word. I love His commandments because they're not burdensome and grievous. They're a delight to keep. And exuberantly. But now, after all that, this phrase seems to be largely ignorance and fomented by The crowd. We know the end of this week. We call it Good Friday, but from another perspective, it was Bad Friday. It seems as if all that praise of those people had turned to shouts of crucify Jesus by the end of the week. Something happened between Sunday and Friday. Something bad happened in their minds. It was... Revelation, light that was searing their conscience and that ignorance was, uh, or that, that praise of that Sunday, it was like they were taking it back and going along the path and say, I'm not giving my palm branch to this cause, I'm taking it home again and my clothes and so on. And I'm regretting that I had anything to do with it. Now, exactly, we don't know exactly what's going on in the minds of these people. But uh, again, there was this movement then which turned to another movement altogether different among the hoi polloi of the city. The, The people of the city and no doubt those outside of the city had come into the city to continue to praise Jesus. And yet their praise turns to shouts of crucify and away with him. And we have no king but Caesar. And we know, we know in the light of the rest of the New Testament that theirs was such a, a, bad, a bad ignorance, not just so that they got off the hook because they didn't know any better, but they had a warped view of what Messiah was all about. In all of those Old Testament prophecies, they were interpreting politically speaking. And according to the truth of the Old Covenant of the theocracy, they wanted a new king in the place of Caesar to reestablish Canaan as the people, the land of the people of God. And that's, by the way, the same problem many have today in evangelicalism. They want to establish a Jewish sort of kingdom And as one confession of the church says, that is just Jewish dreams. Jesus is not a Jewish king. He's the king of the universe. And he's the king of the church of Jesus Christ, which is all of God's people since time began. Believers, first mostly among the Jews, but now of every nation, tribe, and tongue. He's the spiritual king, a spiritual kingdom that comes not with observation, that is within, and it's not by swords that he fights, but by the sword of the word, these things we know. But they didn't. 
And we could cut them some slack because they were taught wrong. Taught wrong about the nature of the kingdom by the Pharisees, the leaders of the blind, the blind leaders of the blind who had a wrong view of Jesus and who rejected Jesus because they didn't need any salvation, they thought. They were righteous, self-righteous, and they didn't need the righteousness of this one called Jesus who claimed of them all that they were sinners. They, they were just content to call those who were outwardly worse than they were. They're sinners, and they're born in sins, and we're not. We're sons of Abraham, after all. Well, Jesus would call them sons of the devil. So they had no need for Jesus and no desire for Jesus and his salvation kingdom and this one whose glory would be sealed in his blood. So that's outside the kingdom. They're moved for sure, that's to be sure. They're moved in response to Jesus, but they have a wrong response. At least it appears among most of them. It's right, biblically speaking, but somehow they're not right in their heart. So their praise will turn the shouts of crucify him. But inside the city, look at this. When he come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved and said, who is this? And what I'm doing here is taking the position, and certainly not unbiblical, that the praise of those outside the city was mostly of those who had less contact with the city and holy things and the religion of the Jews and less were influenced by the Pharisees than those inside the city. There were Galileans who had rejoiced in all of the works that Jesus had been doing in Galilee, and, and now they're meeting with this other group that's more reflective and more pensive and maybe we'd say more theological. They're the thinkers uh, they're the, the ones who follow the scribes and the Pharisees to a T, perhaps, or at least who are burdened by them and burdened by their false theology. Inside the city, they're just questioning. And when they have an answer, the multitudes in the city have an answer, their answer is telling. They say, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And that's all they say. And it sounds so much like what I think Nathaniel was it, or somebody said, can anything good come from Nazareth? This seems to be a disparaging remark. After all, this is Jesus the prophet. Well, the others are saying he's the king. And they weren't emphasizing the fact from whence he was on this earth but they were saying he comes from God and from heaven. And here they focus on the place. And the place is decidedly not Judea. It's in Galilee. The place is certainly not the holy city. It's Nazareth. So this guy has a pedigree problem or a geographical problem. He lives on the other side of the tracks. In the religious zone to be avoided, not the holy place, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, they'll show it where these multitudes and also those who are their leaders, especially in their, in their questioning Jesus, trying to trip him up as he is there in Jerusalem, and as he uh, shows himself to be so much opposed to them, they, they plot to kill him. And on and on they show their colors and the nature of their movement, which is antagonism. So I'd say this. All the people are moved in the city, and undoubtedly the people outside Jerusalem are moved. There's, there's a movement, and there's this crowd movement, and this, this almost chaotic praise. But they're moved, but there's different motivations, perhaps, and the people outside are moved by their passions. They're moved by the power of the crowd. The people inside are more understanding of things and more antagonistic of Jesus. They realize that this king, if he comes, is going to rule them out as the rulers of the people's souls because he's going to take over. And he showed at every step of the way that he's the only one and 
will have none of that exclusivity in our religion, not from this man. They're the ones who represent the whole populace of his own. Remember John 1, verse 11, I think? He came into his own, his own received him not. These are the Jews in the city who are representing the whole people that received him not. Oh, beloved, that's kind of like it is today, isn't it? You think of Palm Sunday and Jesus making a step into that city and on the donkey, the colt of a donkey, and having an impact. And that's what Jesus always does. There's always where Jesus goes an impact. You, you cannot be neutral when you hear Jesus and you behold him, you hear his message. And that's exactly what happens today, isn't it? And this guides us into our third point here. We live in a people or in a day that seems to be largely unmoved by, by Jesus' passion the whole week and all the days. They certainly don't know the significance of the days, and they certainly want to avoid that bloody day of Good Friday. And a lot of people, even they'll remember the Passion Week, but forget Resurrection Sunday. That's the next week. So all of these different reactions to this great mover and shaker of souls. There's this movement towards ignorance in our society that's just almost unthinkable. Hundreds of years ago, people knew the Bible, for example. They even had the King James Version. And there was some fear of God, it seemed, in society. Now, forget it. Now, it's the unbelieving world that is having its way, even as is predicted in the Bible. And they're not moved by these things. Except increasingly, as the church, and to the degree the church has a witness about these things, she's irritated. Irritated. The church is the thorn in the flesh of the world. And so that we preach, and it gets more and more irritated. And it was thinking of praising Jesus, this Jesus, that, that it knows, like the people then. In fact, making an idol of Jesus, someone he's not, an earthly king. And the church comes with its message, he's not that. And we're destroying their idols like Gideon destroyed the Baal God in his father's house. And who likes their idols to be knocked over? Who likes their idols to be moved? Because if the idols are moved and broken and I see that they can't do anything for once, then my whole psyche is changed. I was thinking this. I was comfortable worshiping this. Maybe the God of pleasure. And now you're telling me it's not about pleasure, but it's about piety, which Jesus commands. And now you're telling me I cannot be accepted of God in myself, but I need this Jesus who says, I am your righteousness or you have none. Who likes to be rocked from that world? Jesus doesn't rock. With most people. He's not the rock of most people, except the rock who crushes people and stumbles uh, over whom or over whom and which they stumble. That's the great city of this world. In the church, the closer you get to religion, and this is how I'm interpreting this, and certainly in light of the rest of the scripture, the closer you get to people who are more religious than the folk out 
in the sticks or whatever. We just know simple things from nature and, and all of this. The closer you get to religion, the more the antagonism comes. They're moved, all right, but their passions are moved against Jesus decidedly. And so that there is this amazing resistance to the gospel of the sovereignty of God, of the compassion of God, of the truth that God alone is God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that this God of the palms is the God of the blood. And the theology, the truth of the whole of the Bible is that this God is with us to be God among us and to glorify his name among us, first of all, and not just to give us what we want. You realize that? God doesn't come to the earth, first of all, even to save people. Well, he does that. But he comes to glorify his name. And in all things, something of that, the apostle certainly was moved to confess when he said, I wish myself a curse for my kinsman's sake. doesn't matter about me. But oh, that God's people would be saved, that God would be glorified in fulfilling his promises. And again, increasingly, there's this religious world that will have less and less and even none of it, none of it. The religion divine has become a religion of man. What's the church to do, beloved, at this time? When there's this Palm Sunday praise that seems to fall flat, this Palm Sunday questioning, who is this? Like the devil who said at the first, has God said? Even among the religious cream of the crop. What's the church to do? Well, I say to you in the name of God, keep on preaching and teaching Jesus. Elders demand it. People rejoice in it, love the preaching of the gospel and to be the hearers of the word who thou now are the doers of the word. And on behalf of Jesus, and though there's no Palm Sunday, they live, those moved by the word, to come now on behalf of Jesus in his name to every city, to every tribe, and to every tongue, and to announce the royal dignity of Jesus and the supreme sacrifice of the Son of God's sacrifice on the cross. We need this movement, don't we? And some of us, I believe, have to overcome a lot of inertia here, that is, resistance, because we've been lulled to sleep by something of the world, something of ourself, and we don't really think it's such a great big deal. And we say, even because we believe the sovereignty of God, well, it's up to God, not up to us, and therefore, turn on the television. Beloved, it's up to God. And therefore, it's up to you, meaning he uses you. He gives you to pray. He gives the church her ministry. He could save people without us. But he gives the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which he's claiming now, this last week, to the church to say out to the unbelievers and welcome to the believers the true confessors of Christ. He gives you to pray. He gives you to raise his children. He gives you to work on his behalf and to go into this world and to be salt and light and to be happy for once. And if you've lost your first love, to repent of that and to be on fire once again. So that there's a soul quake and a church quake once again. I leave you with this. Happy Jerusalem, happy Galileans, happy church of Jesus Christ. Hear the prophet. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, this is the Palm Sunday 
revelation. Behold, your king is coming to you. He came to you. He's coming to your heart. He's just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then he rides all the way into the ground and is lifted off the ground and goes to hell for you. That you might never go to hell. And then he rises that you might rise. So we say we don't like the palms. We're not into that. But you got to love them because this is what heaven is. Revelation 7. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Now that's a people, a whole world of them, from every nation, tribe, and tongue, to whom Jesus is everything. And their praise is holy, Palm Sunday praise, forever. Theirs, yours, amen. We pray, Father, that you would love us so that we are moved by your love. Without that love, there would be no motivation, no power. We'd be simply moved by ourselves and by whatever else moves us. Lord, you are the great mover of our salvation. You come and you claim us. Claim us now, Lord, increasingly. Every heart, every square inch of our heart and of our lives. Lord, cause your kingdom to come now in all the world for your glory and your praise, salvation of many, so that the praise continues world without end. Amen.